This is Our American Stories and Cornelius Vanderbilt's life. It's a truly epic one. He launched the transportation revolution, propelled the gold rush, reshaped Manhattan, and invented the modern corporation. Not bad in one lifetime. He was born, by the way, on this day in history in 1794, and that's why we're talking about him. And as always, uh, these days in histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the finest place in this country to study and learn about all the finer things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out all of their brilliant courses. They're available for free for you and your family. And epic in its scope and success, the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt is also the story of the life and the rise of America itself. Just five days after the end of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln becomes one of the 600,000 casualties in America's bloodiest conflict. The country is in ruins, and the world looks at American democracy as a failed experiment. But what most don't realize is that a new era has dawned. The nation is entering an age of advancement, and from the void left by the death of perhaps the greatest statesman we will ever know, a new breed of leader will emerge. Men of insight, innovation, and ingenuity, the likes of which the world has never seen. And over the next five decades, this small group will change history, propelling the United States of America to greatness. Here's Donald Trump. These were great men with a vision that nobody else had. And that's why in the last century, that 50-year period, we built the world. For the first time in the country's short existence, the man most capable of leading America is not a politician. He's a self-made man who, through sheer force of will, turned a poor upbringing on the docks of New York Harbor into an empire. Cornelius Vanderbilt is born on Staten Island during President George Washington's second term on May 27, 1794. Cornelius' father owns a small farm and ferries his goods into Manhattan. He leaves school at the age of 11 and quickly becomes a scholar of the harbor's tides and currents. At 16, Cornelius Vanderbilt strikes his first deal with his mother and buys a small ferry boat with her $100 loan. He quickly earns a reputation as a cutthroat businessman, and at a strapping six foot three inches, the handsome, hard-cursing, tobacco-spitting, and highly patriotic Vanderbilt is willing to use any means necessary to get ahead. Here's Mark Cuban. Back then, it was just pure competition. My brain against your brain, my effort against your effort. You just competed. That's the way they looked at business. It was the wild, wild west. And by hook or crook, it was just win or lose and the best win. During the War of 1812, the British blockaded New York Harbor and the 18-year-old Cornelius cashed in. 
ferrying armaments among the American garrisons within the harbor. His spectacular rise has begun. Here's Vanderbilt's Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer T.J. Stiles. He was a tough guy, getting into scraps with other men, beating the hell out of them and knocking them unconscious. That competitive streak and that toughness very much defined his character. On December 19, 1813, at age 19, Vanderbilt marries his cousin Sophia. They move into a boarding house on Broad Street in Manhattan and have 13 children. As well as being tough, Vanderbilt is a hard-working sailor. He runs his boat on a strict schedule and puts in longer hours than anyone else. His single ferry soon becomes a fleet of sailing ships, transporting goods and passengers to every corner of the growing country. Vanderbilt will become so synonymous with shipping that his nickname becomes the Commodore. Here's Jim Cramer. I think Vanderbilt recognized that what was going to be important is transporting goods from one place to another. And he had this idea that required infrastructure, and not infrastructure that the government was going to provide, but that he was going to provide. By 1818, Vanderbilt's business is stalling. As the bigger and more powerful steamships begin cutting into his territory, these government-subsidized steamships have created a monopoly. The Commodore wastes no time in building his own steamship line, and then he proceeds to put his competition out of business. It was a rejection of the idea that American life needed to be guided by the benevolent hand of government bureaucrats. In the years that follow, Vanderbilt optimizes the scrappy competitive individualism of the Jacksonians as he fights it out in the marketplace against other government-subsidized ships and puts them out of business, as well by cutting costs and adapting new technology, which leads to increased size, speed, and comfort. He had a route from New York City up to Albany along the Hudson River, and he kept cutting prices to undercut his rival until there was a point where he was transporting passengers for free. Vanderbilt loses money this way, but his larger rivals who try to compete by offering free passage on their ships lose even more. The money was not particularly interesting to him. It was the, it was the winning. He loved to win, and he almost always did. And when we come back, more on the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt here on Our American Stories, our This Day in History segments. By the way, you can catch all of them on OurAmericanNetwork.org. I think there are something like 125 of them now. Plug them in, take a long drive. Everything from history to finance to sports, the arts, music, it's all there. More on the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, born on This Day in History in 1794.
This is Our American Stories, the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, born on this day in history in 1794, and we pick up where we last left off. In 1853, Vanderbilt's associates learn just how hard it is to defeat the Commodore. Vanderbilt is on vacation when they take over one of his most profitable shipping routes. Once he discovers their treachery, the Commodore writes them a now famous letter. Gentlemen, you have now undertaken to cheat me. I will not sue you, for the law takes too long. I will ruin you. And he does. Vanderbilt regains his route, and within a year his rivals are out of business. Over the next 40 years, Vanderbilt builds the largest shipping empire in the world. Then, at the peak of his power, just before the Civil War, he does the unthinkable. In response to the California Gold Rush, Work is underway on the first transcontinental railroad, and the Commodore realizes that its completion will transform America, slashing cross-country travel time by months. Railroads were absolutely liberating because the railroads allowed cheap and efficient transportation from one corner of America to another. Vanderbilt sees his future. The 70-year-old sells all of his ships, and invests everything he has in railroads. Here's Jack Welch. You talk about seeing around corners as an element of success. That's what differentiates the good leader. Not many people have it. Not many people can predict that corner. That is a characteristic of great leaders. Vanderbilt's foresight makes him the first railroad owner to envision a network. What he tries to do is to put together little small bits of railroad and forge a united system uh, out of them. Uh, And he does. Vanderbilt manages his railroads just as efficiently as he had his steamships. Unlike some of his competitors, he knows from experience that good service leads to more customers. In fact, he is one of the few who uh, takes some of the profits and doesn't just simply run off and spend them, although he certainly does spend a lot of money, Uh, but he also puts them back into developing and improving the service. His decision to invest heavily in rail pays off. His business approach lowers costs, increases efficiency, and speeds up travel and shipment times. The fractured local economies are now transformed into one united national market. By the end of the Civil War, Vanderbilt is the richest man in America with a net worth of over $68 million, the equivalent of $75 billion today. But all that money can't buy his escape from the war's devastation. In the wake of the Civil War, a country mourns publicly, while Vanderbilt does so privately. In a generally pious era, Vanderbilt follows the occult, psychics and fortune tellers, The Commodore meets with his favorite mystic, a young woman named Veronica Woodhull. The first card is the past, the second, the present, and the third is the future. 
has been an unexpected loss. Someone close to you. My son, George. He died in the war. What about the future? The chariot. There will be a war. War's over. No. Your war is about to begin. Tormented by the loss of his favorite son, who was named after his hero, George Washington, Vanderbilt's empire is more vulnerable than ever before. For Vanderbilt, this is a great tragedy. He had one son who had that same sense of physical strength and ability, and he had died when he was still quite young. It was deeply troubling for the Commodore. For years, Vanderbilt groomed George to take over the family business. Now the Commodore is forced to rely on his less accomplished son, William. Named after America's ninth president, William Henry Harrison. I'm making you operations director of the Hudson Railroad. Vanderbilt places William in the midst of negotiations with the owners of a rival railroad. So name your price. If you give us your freight year-round, we will give you the privilege of allowing your passengers access into Manhattan for 200000 that privilege is not worth 200000 Then let us settle on 100000 I believe that to be a fair and generous offer. I'm not really interested in your generosity. I'm only interested in getting the best deal for my shareholders. And that does not include handing over $100,000 or even $1. My father wants only what he believes is right. The trouble is, your father doesn't know what is right. The old man should be put out to pasture. The message is clear. The competition no longer sees the 72-year-old Vanderbilt as a man to fear. After all, the richest man in America is 30 years past the average life expectancy. But where they see weakness, the Commodore sees an opportunity to assert his dominance and teach William what it means to be a Vanderbilt. If they want a war, I'll give them a war. Locked in a battle for control of the rail lines east of the Mississippi, the Commodore holds nothing back. Vanderbilt owns the only rail bridge into New York City. It's the gateway to the country's largest port, supplying the entire continent. Sit down. Vanderbilt knows this is the hammer he needs to beat his rivals into submission. William walks into his father's office. I want you to close the Albany Bridge. William sets up a blockade. Without the bridge, every other railroad is shut out of New York City. Vanderbilt, in essence, single-handedly erected a blockade around the nation's largest city, cutting it off from contact with the rest of the country. He was now asserting his dominance. Ladies and gentlemen, this train will not be going any farther. We're gonna watch them bleed. Shutting the bridge leaves millions of pounds of cargo unable to reach the rest of the country 
and slowly bleeds his competitors dry. Before their stock is worthless, the presidents of the rival railroad try selling all their shares. Word quickly reaches Wall Street, triggering a massive sell-off. William leans over his father's shoulder during a game of cards. New York Central shares are dropping fast. How low? $20 a share. Buy everything you can. In just days, Vanderbilt takes control of rival railroads, creating the largest single rail company in America. The New York Central Railroad became the centerpiece of his empire, and it came to him as the sudden result of a skillfully executed campaign to get revenge. And when we come back, more on the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt and what a story. It's not a sweet one. This is one tough competitor, and this kind of business is not for the faint of heart, but this is how our country was built and by whom it was built. Not always pretty. But my goodness, without these men, the so-called robber barons, who knows where this country would be? Again, not good men even, not necessarily decent men. And when we come back, more on the life of one of the great robber barons, Cornelius Vanderbilt, born on this day in history in 1794. And again, are this days in history, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And go to ouramericannetwork.org. And catch all of our This Day in Histories. More on the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our This Day in History, the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, born in 1794. Railroads soon crisscross America, tying together the country in a way that just 15 years earlier was unimaginable and providing over 180,000 jobs. Laying tracks becomes America's engine for unprecedented growth. Here's H.W. Brands and Alan Greenspan. Railroads allowed the industrial economy to boom in ways that it couldn't have before. One advance after the other, which essentially was led 
by the railroads largely because there was a need to close the gap between those east of the Mississippi and those on the West Coast. Vanderbilt has made himself the undisputed king of railroads, and now he wants the world to know it. He envisions a monument that will symbolize his immense power. William pitches the project. Work will begin on building a new station that will bring together the three railroads, the Harlem, the Hudson, and the Central. It shall be in the heart of New York and be called the Grand Central Depot. Thousands of workers labor over the next two years on the most ambitious urban construction project America has ever seen. Grand Central Station is the biggest building in all of New York City and the biggest train station in the country, covering some 22 acres. This enormous building towered over every other building in New York at the time. And it was a physical symbol of the size and power of Vanderbilt's railroad empire. Its importance as a physical symbol, as a physical capital of his empire, cannot be underestimated. And it still stamps New York's geography to this day. Here's Steve Case. The story of America isn't just the story of the patriots that helped build the democracy. The reason the United States is the leading economy in the world uh, is because of the work of entrepreneurs who created entire industries that propelled the United States to be the leader of the free world. The growth of the railroads thrusts America into the biggest building expansion the country has ever seen. And Vanderbilt now owns more than 40% of those train lines, more miles of rail than anyone in the world but he wants them all. Chicago is America's fastest growing city. The line connecting it to New York is the most traveled and valuable in all the world. And it's not Vanderbilt's. To make his empire complete, he must gain control of the Erie Line. The Erie was one of the relatively early publicly traded corporations. Vanderbilt had the advantage of millions and millions of dollars. Deep pockets are always an advantage when you're trying to gain control of a corporation. In March of 1868, Vanderbilt instructs his agents to buy up as much Erie stock as possible. Buy every last bit of Erie stock you can get your hands on. There's close to 250,000 shares out there. What Vanderbilt attempted to do was essentially what today we would call a hostile takeover, one company of another. If one person owns the majority of the shares of a company, they had a controlling interest over that company. And that's what Vanderbilt was trying to do with the Erie Railroad. And the Erie's up. It was Wall Street's Wild West days. Who's buying? Who's selling? It was shoot out of the OK Corral. Demanding control of the company by the end of the week. It's a vintage Vanderbilt move, one he pioneered. Tell your brokers we're about to make a play for Erie. Quietly. But his attempt will be thwarted by an even more ingenious idea, cooked up by three men on Erie's board of directors. Their names are Daniel Drew, Jay Gould, and Jim Fisk. These three men represent the new America that Vanderbilt is helping to create. One of self-made men with ruthless ambition. 
and after years of watching the Commodore dominate, they're eager to build their own empire. They recognize Vanderbilt's plan to buy the Erie Line and see the opportunity they've been waiting for. Here's Ted Turner. Competition, I think it's good for the system, and it's really, I think, what most businesses is about. It's doing a better job on out-hustling your competitors. He wants the Erie. <laughs> we'll give him the Erie. Drew Gould and Fisk spend the weekend printing new shares of stock using a printing press they set up in the basement of the Erie offices. Each share they print dilutes Vanderbilt's stake in the company, and they print over 100,000. There was some fine print in one of the clauses of the Erie's charter that allowed the board of directors to issue new stock, unbeknownst to shareholders. Go! And so the more shares that Vanderbilt bought, the more he had to buy in order to approach that magic majority. Their plan is known as watering down stock, a move initiated by Daniel Drew. Watering the stock is a way to inflate the value of your asset. and actually began with Daniel Drew because he began as a cattle driver. He would take his livestock, give them lots of salt right before he was going to deliver them. When they licked the salt, they would drink insane amounts of water. Then he would sell them and weigh them while they were good and fat and heavy. That was the birth of the concept of watered stock. Its simplicity is brilliant, and Wall Street is never the same. We need to make him bleed. Today, the idea of printing your own stocks is unthinkable. Not to mention illegal. Imagine the press. They'll feast on him. <laughs> you won't know what hit him. The only rule was there were no rules. Whatever it took to put your competition out of business, they were going to try to do it. Unaware, Vanderbilt continues to buy. 100 shares of Erie stock here. That's right, gentlemen, 100 shares. Who's on? I got 500 shares of Erie. 500 shares. People became suspicious. Looking good, Jay. Where is all of this Erie stock coming from? Under chairs. Drop it down to 85. Under chairs, anyone? That will do, gentlemen. Drew Gould and Fisk are wired. Think of the look on his face. Oh, God, I wish I could be a fly on that wall. <laughs> and when we come back, the final installment of this epic story. And by the way, anytime you've ever heard of stock manipulation, this was the epic, the first, the Mac Daddy of stock manipulation stories. And by the way, the average little guy wasn't getting hurt here. He's a, and it almost always is. Big guys pitted against big guys trying to, well, punch each other out. And here Vanderbilt has met his match. How this all ends? Well, stick around. The life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, born on this day in history in 1794. And as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out all of their great courses. There are 16 to date. And put your family through them. You'll learn everything you need to know about American life, American history, Greek history, literature, the arts, and even C.S. Lewis's work. More on the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt after these messages.
This is Our American Stories and our final segment on the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt and what a ride it's been. I'm learning some things and I thought I knew quite a bit about Vanderbilt. And when we left off, well, Vanderbilt was trying to do what we would call today a hostile takeover. That is, buy up existing shares, gobble them up. You read about guys like this and barbarians at the gate. Some of our great investors, like Carl Icahn, this is what they do. They buy up shares, and then they throw the management out, and they put some new people in there. And that's just, it's rough, and it's tough. But that's Wall Street, and you may not like it, you may not, you may like it, doesn't matter. This is how the world works in this particular world. And there's a big gamble going on. Vanderbilt's trying to gobble the company up. Meanwhile, the guys on the other side are printing more stock, because they know he's got plenty of money to burn. Let's pick up where the story last left off. William Hand delivers the freshly printed shares to his father. Here are the Erie shares. I assume we control the company now. But Vanderbilt notices something unusual. He compares the ink and paper of his new shares to his old ones. Once Vanderbilt saw the stock certificate, he would have seen very quickly that it had been printed within the last day or so. It would have had no ruffles around the edges. It was a physical piece of paper that was crisp and new, fresh off the printing press. Damn! Drew, Gould, and Fisk celebrate. Toast! A toast! To money. <laughs> to Vanderbilt's money! <laughs> He's been had. Vanderbilt has bought $7 million of watered-down stock from Daniel Drew, Jay Gould, and Jim Fisk. Today worth over $1 billion. Vanderbilt has been underestimated before, but the pair of unknowns wants the world to know of their victory. Thank you. Don't mind if I do. They also want to secure the public's sympathy. They call in the press. Uh, it is no secret what uh, Vanderbilt has been trying to do. He owns more railroads than anybody else. But Gould and me, we have struck a blow for the little guy. Now, sure, he may be rich and sure, he may be powerful, but somebody had to stand up to the old bastard. <laughs> it was a humiliating defeat for the Commodore, a man who was so fiercely competitive, who wanted to win at absolutely everything, to whom money was so important. And here he was, defeated and insulted publicly by Gould and Fisk. Drew, Gould, and Fisk may be on top of the world, but they've awakened a sleeping lion. Vanderbilt vows to never be beaten again. Here's billionaire media mogul Sumner Redstone. They don't think in terms of money. They think in terms of winning. Now, naturally, if you win big in business, money follows. But that shouldn't be your objective. Your objective should be to win. To win. Win, win, all the time. Not sometimes, every time. Vanderbilt uses the leverage of a lawsuit to recover his losses, but he and Gould become public enemies. By contrast, 
Vanderbilt is known to befriend all his other foes after their fights end. The year following his wife Sophia's death in 1868, he marries another one of his cousins, who has the unusual name Frank. Frank is 45 years younger than the Commodore. Soon after, Frank's relative convinces Vanderbilt to endow what would become Vanderbilt University, named in his honor. Vanderbilt gives $1 million, the largest charitable gift in American history to that date. To truly understand Vanderbilt's wealth, if he had been able to liquidate his estate, he would have received one out of every nine dollars in existence. By contrast, if the richest man in the world today, Bill Gates, were to liquidate his entire estate, he would own one out of every $138 circulating in the American economy. Throughout his life, Vanderbilt takes no salary or bonuses as the chief executive of his corporations. The only compensation he gets is in dividends, which means that his companies had to be healthy, productive, and profitable year in and year out. In early May of 1876, rumors spread through New York City. The king of the American railroads is dying. Soon reporters set up a vigil outside the Commodore's home. But when a few are invited in, they hear an unmistakable voice from upstairs. I'm not dying, shouted the Commodore between epithets. But he is wrong. Although he does hold on for nearly eight months, the tough old Commodore dies on January 4th, 1877, at the age of 82. The self-made man left his empire, worth over $100 million, $185 billion in today's money, to his son William, a sum that is greater than all the money in the U.S. Treasury, and a fortune that puts him among the top ten wealthiest people in history. And over the next six years, the Commodore's son William will double his father's sum. In 1971, Vanderbilt's powerful New York Central is folded into Amtrak. But as the directors of his railroads observed, the work will go on, though the master workman is gone. The Commodore's life left its mark on Americans' most basic beliefs about equality and opportunity. He epitomized the Jacksonian ideal of every man being free to compete and rise on his own merits. And that ideal remains a bright thread in the fabric of American thought. And great job on that as always, Greg. And again, thanks to Hillsdale College for being a proud sponsor of this show. And we're proud to have them here. And think back on this story because it really is amazing. I mean, the guy has the largest shipping empire in the world. And then at the peak of his power, just before the Civil War, he just shifts. He just sells everything. Because as Jack Welch said, he had that prescience. He had that ability to see around the corner. And not many people can see around the corner and then bet everything. Crazy. And so many more interesting things. But that point in American life... You know, you got to look at what happened after the Civil War. I mean, I think all of Europe was thrilled because they were betting against us. They said this thing called democracy can't work out. And the rabble, well, we battled each other and destroyed the country over slavery. 
destroyed it. The South was burned to the ground. You know, one in eight or ten Americans was either wounded or killed. The economy in a shambles. And now the union had to get stitched together. And it was these titans of industry who did it. The government wasn't going to do this. They couldn't. Where were they going to get the money? So without these, quote, robber barons, these evil guys, and by the way, this is not a nice guy. You're not taking Vanderbilt to tea. He's not interested in tea. But when your kids are studying Vanderbilt in college or high school, or you're hearing about the word robber barons, one of the things we try and do here on Our American Stories is tell the real story, the full story of these people, of these men, J.P. Morgan. We tell his story like no one else has told it. And even Hamilton's story, because my goodness, Hamilton teaches everybody about the power of debt and creates the first bond, really, and how to think about debt and government and financing big projects. And that's what we do again here on Our American Stories. Hillsdale College, uh, Central Michigan, one of the most beautiful places in this country. If you're thinking about sending a child to school, uh, go there. We teach there two, three weeks a year. They're students. Well, they're here right now and will be and hopefully always will be working with us us teaching them about storytelling, them teaching us a few things too, because my goodness, they get put through the mill at Hillsdale. They work hard, and when they come out of there, they've learned some things that a lot of us don't know. A lot of us grown-ups don't know about our own country. And so thank you, Hillsdale, for all the support, and particularly the support of your people. Uh, It means a lot to us that your young people and their young people are here. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org and go down to our This Day in History, and just there's just so much there, so much there. And the next time you're in New York City and you're in Grand Central Station, step outside for a minute and take a look at the building, and you won't believe it. You won't believe how beautiful it is, how big it is. It's a full square block. And at the time, as we learned in this piece, it was the biggest and most ambitious construction project in New York City history, the biggest building, a symbol of the wealthiest man in his hometown. Again, born, can imagine this, in little Staten Island when George Washington was in his second term. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is one of our best. The story of Cornelius Vanderbilt, born this day in history in 1794. His legacy lives on. And my goodness, that net worth number, it's just crazy. One in nine of all American dollars were Vanderbilt's. Crazy. And he gave so much of it away, by the way, folks. Another recurrent story here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and this next segment features two of our favorite things, history and music. This day in music history, take it away, Jesse. This day in music history, 1966, the Rolling Stones are at number one in the UK singles chart with Painted Black, reaching number one on the Billboard Hot 100 during a stay of 11 weeks. And in 1966, the Beatles recorded Yellow Submarine at Abbey Road Studios in London. Recovering from a case of food poisoning, producer George Martin missed out on the recording. EMI engineer Jeff Emmerich worked on the session instead. It was supposed to be a nonsensical song for kids, but it received various social and political interpretations at the time. Music journalist Peter Doggett wrote that, quote, the culturally empty song became a kind of Rorschach test for radical minds. And on this day in music history, 1973, Deep Purple releases the rock classic Smoke on the Water. First released on their 1972 album Machine Head, the song was ranked number 434 on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. It's a four-note blues scale melody in G minor, harmonized by parallel fourths. The main riff, played on a Fender Stratocaster by Blackmore, is later joined by a hi-hat and distorted organ. Then the rest of the drums, then the electric bass, and the vocals. Also in 1973, this day in music history, the Edgar Winter Group went number one on the U.S. singles chart with Frankenstein, the band's only U.S. number one. It reached number 18 in the U.K. In live performances of the song, Edgar Winter further pioneered the advancement of the synthesizer as a lead instrument by becoming the first person ever to strap the instrument around his neck. The track required numerous edits to shorten it, and the end result was pieced together from many sections of recording tape using a razor blade and splicing tape, the old-fashioned way. And born on this day in music history, 1926, Miles Davis, jazz trumpeter and composer who had a 1959 number one with Kind of Blue. He was a major influence on jazz music, and he died in September of 1991. You can find our complete special on the life of Miles Davis at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Also born on this day in music history, this time in 1964, Lenny Kravitz, U.S. singer, guitarist, songwriter, and actor. In addition to singing lead and backing vocals, Kravitz often plays all of the instruments when he's recording. 
He won the Grammy Award for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance four years in a row from 1999 to 2002, breaking the record for most wins in that category, as well as setting the record for the most consecutive wins in one category by male. Here's Lenny Kravitz remembering his very first guitar. The first guitar that I was given by my parents was a Yamaha acoustic guitar that had a pickup in it. It had two knobs on the body. I wanted an electric, but we lived in this little apartment, so my parents got me the acoustic with the pickup. I'm not sure how happy I was (laughs) about that. I was appreciative to get the guitar, but I was like, man, come on now. This isn't, this is is not out of the Fender catalog, you know? But that was the first guitar, and that, that got a lot of use. Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide. Another This Day in Music History birthday in 1975, Lauren Hill is born in East Orange, New Jersey. The Miseducation of Lauren Hill remains Hill's only studio album. It received massive critical acclaim, debuting at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 and has sold approximately 8 million copies. Soon afterward, Hill dropped out of the public eye, dissatisfied with the music industry and suffering with the pressures of fame. And one more birth date on this day in music history, 1949, Hank Williams Jr. is born Randall Hank Williams in Shreveport, Louisiana, to country legend Hank Williams and his first wife, Audrey. The preacher man says it's the end of time, and the Mississippi River, she's a gold drive. He's well known for his hit, A Country Boy Can't Survive, and is the performer of the theme song for Monday Night Football. The interest is up, and the stock market's down, and you're only getting mugged if you go downtown. And that's this day in music history. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I live back in the woods, you see. A woman and the kids and the dogs and me. I got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive. And a country boy can survive. Country folks can survive. All day long I can catch catfish from dusk till dawn Make our own whiskey and our own smoke too Ain't too many things these old boys can't do We grow good old tomatoes and homemade wine And country boy can survive Country folks can
This is Lee Habib, and this is our final thought segment. And we'll be using this Brian Eno music each time. It's a story about someone who's recently passed, a eulogy. And by the way, this music, called An Ending or Ascent, you can hear this at the World War II Museum in the Road to Tokyo exhibit, in the final exhibit. And that's when we get to see the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. We actually understand why, after walking through that exhibit, why our men had to do that. And as the mushroom cloud rises, this music composed specifically for that museum by Eno, a great composer, comes up. And not a dry eye leaves that exhibit. Do go to New Orleans when you get a chance, the World War II Museum. And now we're going to bring you this week's final thoughts. And the feature is a eulogy delivered by Deal Hudson for his sister Ruth Ann, who had recently passed at 69 years of age and was survived by their mother. Let's take a listen. I think our families have met before. I think at weddings, Jennifer and Celie's. Isn't it wonderful we all look the same? I didn't really come with any prepared remarks, except to say to all of you who are here, thank you. Thank you for being here. It is an honor that you're showing to my sister and to our entire family who joined me in saying thank you. Instead of a eulogy, I would rather read you a letter from my sister Ruth, whose words will mean so much more to you than anything I can say, and more to me. Here's her letter. Dear brother, when I asked you to give a eulogy at my funeral, I knew you would find the right words to say. After all, you were always so good at talking yourself out of any kind of trouble. Well, most trouble. But I knew you would first look at our mother's face, Emmy, and you would say, I love you, Mom. I loved you when I was with you, and I love you now from where I am now. I love you even more because I am now standing close to love himself. The one whose very being is love. Nothing else. And here I'm perfectly happy. No longer struggling for breath because the very breath of life has been breathed into me once again. I am reborn. You always said a mother should never live to see her child die. I understand why you said that. You said that because I would have been crushed myself if Jennifer or Celie 
had passed before me. But now, where I am, I have the advantage of telling you, try not to grieve too much or too long. Because I'm not really gone from you. With the eyes of faith, you can see me clearly as I can see you and pray for you, all of you, without ceasing. Life here is kind of like an endless prayer for those we love and even those we don't know. When we meet again, you will understand why I have written this letter to you, for you to hear and to believe. Brother, I know how much you hate talking about yourself, which is one of the reasons I decided to write you so that you wouldn't have to struggle for the words to describe how much you'll miss me and so forth. Rather than that, I would like to tell you, like you to tell everyone, how I always asked you to sing the impossible dream whenever we were together. To right the unrightable wrong To be better far than you are To try when your arms are too weary This kind of family tradition going back to high school days. I have to tell you, brother, it wasn't because you have such a great voice. No, what I loved was the deal you became when you were singing. How you showed your heart. How you came out from hot behind your mind. And all those books you are always reading. When you sang to me, I felt you open and give me the brotherly love you sometimes felt it difficult to give. And to your credit, you never, not even once, refused to sing. Please, please, brother, keep singing. Be that man. She writes... I always found it hard to say goodbye to my friends. They will remember how I always begged them to stay with me a little longer. Please tell them, and I wish I could speak to each of them by name. Please tell them how they enriched my life beyond measure. In fact, their friendship coupled with my family's love surely extended my life by many years. It was knowing all of you were there, as you are now, the pull of your love that pulled me into the future. Enjoying years I might not have had otherwise. To them say thank you for my life, for the fullness of that life and those years they gave me. Just as I found it hard to say goodbye, it's hard to bring this letter to an end. 
the last letter I will ever write. Though it's my last letter, not my last thought, word, or prayer. Those will cross that invisible line between eternity and time and descend as a blessing upon all of you. When I lived among you like everyone, I had my doubts. Here, there are no doubts. Here we see face to face. I know that my prayers will help fill the void you feel and lessen the pain. Truly, your prayers and mine have already met. Met at that invisible line where everything turns into glory. Ruth. To dream the impossible dream to find the unbeatable foe to bear with unbearable sorrow. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Final thoughts. Deal Hudson, his late sister Ruth Ann. Love the part where he said, When we sing, when we sang to me, you gave me the brotherly love you found difficult to otherwise give. That reminded me of Aquinas, who always said, When we sing, we pray twice. Please, brother, she said, keep singing. Be that man. This is Lee Habib. Final thoughts. Our American stories. More after this. This is my quest to follow that star. No matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to be willing to give. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for the second feature of our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. Here's our own Alex Cortez. When the Lewis and Clark expedition departed on May 14th, Meriwether Lewis wasn't with them. And their men, the Corps of Discovery, were used to this by now, given what they had experienced during their training over the winter. Lewis is gone for all but 35 days during that winter, and Clark is there 105 days. So they're, they're really Clark's team when they leave in May. Lewis is sort of this commander who's gone most of the time, and when he's there, he's not very pleasant. He's very, he's a hard disciplinarian, he's kind of a prig, and he's hard on the men, and he's, he's officious. And Clark is much more genial, and he's there. And so imagine, this, the first impression is so important, the men are really Clark's men, and Lewis is just sort of a supernumerary or something mm-hmm. at this point. 
They were under Clark's command, even though technically Clark wasn't even a co-commander, as Lewis had promised him that he would be, and as Lewis and Clark had told the men that he was. Here's historian Gary Moulton. But in truth, his service was not as co-commander. Because of some snafu in the War Department, he was only given a lieutenant's commission. And William Clark and Lewis hid this fact from the men. And he always signed himself Captain William Clark, Captain of a Corps of Discovery. So he was not really a captain in the Army. He was only a lieutenant. Lewis and Clark never seemed to call attention to this fact. They served during the whole of the trip as co-commanders. And Clark never seemed to uh, feel any sort of secondary role to Lewis. And it sure speaks to the loyalty of Meriwether Lewis. And according to historian Clay Jenkinson, also to the character of William Clark. Some people in that position would have walked away from the expedition. Clark was upset about it, and he later made it clear that he was upset about it, but he swallowed his pride and he did it. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Lewis was still in St. Louis when the Corps departed, finishing up affairs which he had clearly deemed more essential. Here's the former editor of People Magazine and Money Magazine, Landon Jones. He had a couple reasons to be there. One was that he was supposedly helping the some Osage Indian chiefs proceed from St. Louis to Washington, D.C. to meet Jefferson. And so they, Lewis wanted to help help kind of outfit the Osage chiefs and get them on the way to Washington. And then he, he was talking to people in St. Louis who had been up the river, and they could tell him more sort of intelligence about what, what was up on the Missouri, and, and, and in particular what happened when he got to beyond auto settlements and when they were only dealing with, with the Indian nations. Um, so that was the second reason. The third reason, he was going to parties. He was going to a lot of balls. He was meeting a lot of women. He was socially awkward. He was not good with women. And, uh, but this was an occasion when he really had an opportunity to meet some. He might have met him, but he didn't walk away with one. Those Osage Indian chiefs were more successful, however, taking up Lewis's offer to take an all-expenses-paid vacation to the capital to meet Thomas Jefferson, who was the president of what might as well have been to them a foreign nation. There was a steady uh, parade of Indians coming from the, from the far west to Washington. Uh, and the idea uh, was that the, the great white father in Washington would, would impress upon the Indians you know, their power and authority. So the Indians would come and see this, the strength of this young nation and would be dissuaded from the idea of fighting against them or resisting them. Yes, you heard that right. Thomas Jefferson told the Indians that he was their new father, the great white father. Yeah, that's weird. Meanwhile, William Clark had departed along the Missouri River with the rest of the Corps of Discovery, and in those early days, they sure didn't leave at an early time. They always leave at 4.30 in the afternoon. The reason they left at 4.30, we've all had this experience. They didn't want to get too far on the road um, that they couldn't go back and pick up something they'd forgotten. And, and so they went just a couple, of, a couple of hours on the first day and camped. And then if, if they had forgotten something or send, needed to send somebody back, they could, they could still send that person back to get it and they could come back that night. But if they'd gone too far, they'd gone too far. 
So it was just a way that you sort of identify with the human quality of the expedition. On May 16th, they arrive where Meriwether Lewis plans to meet them in a few days, the village of St. Charles. Which is basically a sort of a French or French-Canadian community uh, with a Catholic priest and, 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 a, and a lot of pretty women. And before they docked, they received a warning from William Clark. A warning that Corps member Sergeant John Ordway wrote down. Note, the commanding officer is full assured that every man in the detachment will have their true respect for their own dignity and not make it necessary for him to leave St. Charles for a more retired situation. A warning that would not be heeded. And on their very first night there... The citizens of St. Charles welcomed Clark and the men and threw balls for them. Um, The men were very enthusiastic about meeting the women and having the parties. And some of the men snuck out um, late to go to the parties, and they got caught. And that meant they would be disciplined. One of the ways they would discipline them was have the men do a court-martial, and the men would decide who was guilty. And so that was another way of getting the men all together as a unit and saying, we will enforce discipline. And that's exactly what William Clark ordered here. That court-martial took place the very next day, and Sergeant John Ordway detailed the whole affair in his journal that night. May 17th, Sergeant and four men of the party destined for the Missouri expedition will convene at 11 o'clock today on the quarterdeck of the boat and form themselves into a court-martial to hear and determine, on behalf of the captain, the evidence is against William Warner and Hugh Hall and John Collins. Signed, William Clark, Commander. Detail for court-martial, Sergeant John Ordway present. Members, Reuben Fields, Richard Windsor, Joseph Whitehouse, John Potts. Court convened agreeable to orders on 17th of May, 1804. After being duly sworn, the court proceeded to the trial of William Warner and Hugh Hall on the following charges. For being absent without leave last night, contrary to orders, to this charge the prisoners plead guilty. The court won of the opinion that the prisoners Warner and Hall are both guilty of being absent from the camp without leave and do sentence them each to receive 25 lashes on their naked back. But the court recommend them from their former good conduct to the mercy of the commanding officer. At the same court was tried John Collins, charged first for being absent and without leave, second for behaving in an unbecoming manner at the ball last night, thirdly for speaking in the language after his return to camp, tending to bring disrespect to orders of the commanding officer. Prisoner pleads guilty to the first charge, but not guilty to the two last charges. After mature deliberation and agreeable to the evidence, the court are of the opinion that the prisoner is guilty of all the charges alleged against him. It being a breach of the rules and articles of war, and do sentence him to receive 50 lashes on his naked back. The commanding officer approves of the proceedings and decision of the court-martial and orders that the punishment of John Collins take place this evening at sunset in the presence of the party. The punishment ordered to be inflicted on William Warner and Hugh Hall is remitted under the assurance arriving from the confidence which the commanding officer has of the sincerity of the recommendation from the court. 
after the punishment, Warner Hall and Collins will return to their squads and duty. The court is dissolved. Signed, William Clark. And here's what William Clark wrote in his journal that day. A fine day. Three men confined for misconduct. I had a court-martial and punishment. By fine day, he must have meant the weather. And when we come back, more on Lewis and Clark, the most epic road trip ever. our American stories and we return to the second feature of our the most epic road trip ever series and of course we're following Lewis and Clark and their core of discovery along their 2.5 year journey and let's return to where we left off they're in St. Charles Missouri and several of the men had just been court-martialed for behavior unbecoming a military officer and two days later Clark wrote this in his journal. George Druyer, a member of the Corps, returns from St. Louis and brought $99. He lost the letter from Louis to me. Seven ladies visit me today. And you can see that the Corps, including William Clark, are still obsessed with the women. And here's Joseph Whitehouse's journal that night. In the evening, we were amused at a ball, which was attended by a number of French ladies who were remarkably fond of dancing. But the next day, a Sunday, they may have gotten a little more centered. Yeah, some of their men went to the, the Catholic sermon in St. Charles, which I hope uh, sobered them up. <laughs> in fact, 20 of them, half of them went. Joseph Whitehouse wrote, several of the party went to church, which the French call mass. It clearly was Whitehouse's first time here in the term. It was also clear that they would have to get much more serious and fast. Meriwether Lewis would arrive that day, on which he wrote, The morning was fair and the weather pleasant. At 10 a.m., agreeably to an appointment of the preceding day, I was joined by Captain Stoddard and many other respectable inhabitants of St. Louis, who had engaged to accompany me to the village of St. Charles. We set forward to that village in order to join my friend, companion and fellow laborer, Captain William Clark, who had previously arrived at that place with the party, destined for the discovery of the interior of the continent of North America. Here's Landon Jones on the tone of this journal entry. When Lewis leaves St. Louis, you know, he had this sort of sense of grandeur, of, of, of sort of self-importance. And he said, here, I, here we go, I'm, I'm walking to meet, to meet Captain Clark and and we are beginning the exploration of the interior of the continent of North America. So he set, he set the bar high. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's what he did. I mean, he knew what he was doing was of historical importance. I, I don't think Clark, Clark didn't, didn't reach for the stars in, in his prose, but he got the job done. Lewis continued his journal entry with some rather distinctive first impressions of St. Charles. The village contains a chapel, 100 dwelling houses, and about 450 inhabitants. Their houses are generally small and but illy constructed. A great majority of the inhabitants are miserably poor, illiterate, and when at home excessively lazy. 
Though they are polite, hospitable, and by no means deficient in point of natural genius, they live in a perfect state of harmony among each other and place as implicit confidence in the doctrines of their spiritual pastor, the Roman Catholic priest, as they yield passive obedience to the will of their temporal master, the commandant. Here again is Landon Jones. I think Lewis and Clark would be what we now call Episcopalians, and um, and and this was a Catholic, a Catholic community, and so these these Virginia gentlemen uh, just didn't take kindly to the Catholics. Lewis's prose may not have always been kind, but it was almost always compelling. Here's Stephen Ambrose. It's one of the great treasures of American literature. I'd get after my friends in the creative writing department. Why don't you guys do more with Lewis and Clark? They, of course, never think about doing that. Meriwether Lewis wrote in a stream of consciousness that, to my mind, is as good as Gertrude Stein or William Faulkner. In the next day, the core of discovery left for good, outside the boundaries of civilization as they knew it. Of this, Ambrose wrote, as the boat turned her bow into the stream, Lewis and his party cut themselves off from civilization. There would be no more incoming letters, no orders, no commissions, no fresh supplies, no reinforcements, nothing reaching them until they returned. Here's Lewis and Clark expert, Jerry Garrett. And in the Lewis and Clark community, various positions argue that they are the start of the expedition. And because Lewis and Clark got in the boats in St. Charles together, that's why that community lays claim to be the start of the expedition. And they add to that the, the parties that were given to them and other activities that it was the most significant stopping off point. To the guy on the street, it remains St. Louis, and then other towns, Louisville, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, all lay claim to being where the expedition started. And yet there exists an indisputable trump card. This is America, land of the conspiracy theories, and nobody agrees on everything. So, uh, But it makes for fun discussions. And then the diplomat ends the, ex- the uh, discussion by saying the expedition began in the mind of Thomas Jefferson. And nevertheless, how was their first day out altogether? On the first day that they are you know, out, out of St. Charles, when they are moving uh, up the river, Lewis is walking on the bank. Uh, and he's gathering scientific specimens and making notes. And he, he was the, the working scientist on the expedition. And Clark was the guy who was taking care of the boats. He was taking care of the goods and, and taking care of the men. And so, uh, and Lewis was a, a little bit of a loner in that regard. I, I think the men respected Lewis and they were probably a little afraid of him. And after all, he was the president's friend. He was a friend of Jefferson's. And Jefferson had treated Lewis like a son. That's a son he never had. In hindsight, it was likely an incredible asset for them to have those two very different personalities as leaders. One that the men could feel close to, and another that could keep them all in check. They had just uh, started down up the river, and they came to a place called Tavern Cave. And I've actually been to Tavern Cave, and it, and it is a, uh, a huge sort of opening in the rock that overlooks the river. And traders would come there, and they would bargain, and they would write their names on the walls. 
and you can go there now and still see their, their initials on the walls, you know, from 100 or 100 or more years or earlier. Uh, anyway, Lewis was there, and so sort of Lewis being Lewis, he, he decides to walk up by himself, and he, he climbs up on top of this, uh, this cliff uh, above the cave, and up there he slips and falls, and he, he sort of tumbles down a steep hillside. And when you're there, by the way, it is frightening. Uh, it, that is a, a scary place. And he, he somehow pulls out his knife and digs his knife into, the, into the, the bank and stops himself. We know this only because Clark made a, a couple of, of very short descriptions about it. He didn't really describe it in detail. Here's all that William Clark wrote in his journal. A fair evening. Captain Lewis near falling from the rocks 300 feet. He caught at 20 foot. A single sentence. Clark painfully left us wanting more. I don't think Clark really saw it. He must have heard about it from Lewis who told him. Um, but if Lewis had fallen, he would have, he would have, I mean, all the way down, he would have died. Uh, when you're there, you know he would have died. And what you think about is what, what would have happened if uh, he had fallen and, and died. The, the expedition was in pretty good hands with Captain Clark. I mean, we, he could have led them on. I mean, it would have been a little harder without Lewis, particularly in gathering specimens. But they could have proceeded on with, without Lewis. On the other hand, if Clark had been the one who had fallen off, the, off Tavern Cave and the one who had, who had died, it's very hard to imagine the expedition would get very far with, with just Lewis in charge. Still alive, on May 26th, Meriwether Lewis dictates thorough orders, which he calls detachment orders for their expedition. Lewis writes a long and detailed and very and very uh, precise uh, list of orders, kind of outlining everyone's responsibility. Um, and, and Clark just signs it later. I mean, he lets Lewis do all this, because Lewis, Lewis was a lawyer in the group. And, and so Lewis writes it all out. And I think what is interesting is that you see them converting from a party group that had had all these parties in St. Charles to a bona fide military expedition with very rigid rules and procedures and expectations and guard duty, and they divide the men up into into their three squads, and they, they, they appoint the sergeants, you know, Floyd, Ordway, Pryor, one in, ahead of each squad, and they, and they list all the men who are on the expedition and where they will be, and which squad they will serve in. And who would be hunting for food, who would be the cooks, who would be at the stern of the boat, who would be at the bow, who would entertain them at night, and who would ration out their daily dose of whiskey. But Lewis's otherwise exhaustive orders missed entirely one of the men. Interestingly, there was one man who does not get listed or mentioned at all, and that is Clark's slave York, uh, who is a, in the end, is a full-fledged member of... Uh, a gun-carrying member of the expedition and a hunter and a, work, and a hard worker who worked as hard as anybody else on the expedition. But at that beginning, uh, he, he was invisible then. He wouldn't be later. Stay with us on the most epic road trip ever to see how. And great job on that, Alex. And we'll have much more on the Lewis and Clark series. And thank you to Mark and Tish in Houston who put us on this road. 
and our proud sponsors, and thank you for your support and for putting us on the Lewis and Clark Trail, the most epic road trip ever. This is Our American Stories, the Lewis and Clark Story. Story.